you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus. Titus chapter 2. If you're new, we are in a series in Titus. Uh, we're doing a verse-by-verse, line-by-line study in the book of Titus. And we find ourselves in Titus 2, verse 11, to the end of the chapter this morning. Titus 2, 11 through 15 is where we will be. But today, we kind of find ourselves in one of the first like doctrinally rich sections of Titus. Now, Paul and Paul's writings... Paul, when he wrote to, you know, Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, a lot of those he would deal with theology. In Ephesians and Colossians especially, he would deal with theology in the first half of the book. And then he would move to Christian living at the last half of the book. Now, in Titus, First and Second Timothy, their pastoral epistles were Paul is writing to pastors, to Titus, to Timothy, and he's instructing them. And now he wants Titus to motivate the church on the island of Crete to sound living, like that they would live in a way that aligns with what they believe. So one of the main themes we see throughout the entire book of Titus is that if you believe this, then your behavior should be this, right? Your belief and your behavior should line up. It should match. It should look the same. And so what he's going to really get to again today is the gospel, He's going to really drive home the gospel to the church in Crete, to Titus, and to us. Now, we as a church, a redeemer, we want to be, we must be a gospel-centered church. The gospel must be at the center of everything we do. The gospel. Like we, like I think so often people think that the gospel is for those who are lost. Or for, but no, the gospel is for the most mature believer. We continually must apply the gospel to our lives. We must remember that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and it never changes. It, we're, we're not just saved by grace, through faith, and Christ, and then we somehow, but it, it's always we're kept. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's never changed, it never moves away from the gospel. But this is all because of God's grace. And we're going to see today that God's grace does different things. It saves us. It empowers us. It motivates us. All these different things that God's grace does in our lives. Now again, remember why Titus is in Crete. He's there to put things in order. He's to teach sound doctrine. We're, we saw that last week. Teach sound doctrine, what accords with sound doctrine, because there was some false teaching there. And today, as I said, we find ourselves in a doctrinally rich section. So read with me, Titus 2, 11 through 15, and then we will move to our outline. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, grace. He talks about this. The grace of God has appeared. 
it appeared. Now, it appeared through the person. It appeared. It was, it's like an epiphany. It appeared through Christ. Uh, this grace, of, for grace, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. So the theme of this today is grace. Grace at work. We see that grace works in the church, works in people's lives. And we must grow in our understanding of grace. Now, it appeared. What does it mean it appeared? Well, Luke chapter 2, do you remember when the angel announced to the shepherds, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news, the gospel means good news. Gospel means good news. For I bring you good news of great joy. It will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior. Grace, the grace of God, appeared, how? In Christ, in the appearing of Christ. The, the, the first coming of Christ, grace appeared. Uh, it says in John 1, John 1, 1, it starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and behold, behold, we have seen his glory as the only Son of Man full of, what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus appeared. When he appeared, the grace of God appeared. It came in a person. It came in the person of Jesus Christ. It appeared. In 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 it says that it uses the same word, 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8. It says, but because of his, I'm sorry, for, for the gospel, by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. Okay, we're not saved by our works. We're not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God had preordained, predestined, he, he had predetermined that he would give us grace through his son Jesus Christ even before the foundation of the world. This was not reactionary. It was always God's plan. It was always God's plan. It's not reactionary. It was always, God knows all things. He's omniscient, right? He's all-powerful. That means nothing can happen unless it goes through his hand. And he purposed, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which is now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Grace appeared in Christ. Why do we want to make much of Christ? Why do we want to sing about Christ? Why do we want to worship Christ? Because God gave us his grace through Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, His Son, it appeared. God's grace didn't evolve. It always was. It came forth in a person, the incarnation of Christ, God in flesh. God had unveiled His grace and His mercy to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. This grace, his, what does it mean to have grace? God's grace, it's His un merited favor and kindness towards us. That's all it is. Unmerited. What does it mean to be unmerited? Undeserved. God's grace. It's his unmerited favor towards us. Now, the reality is all of humanity is under God's common grace. 
If God didn't extend grace to us, we wouldn't be able to take another breath. Uh, he keeps the oxygen balances just perfect. In the, like, there's all these things that he just... Hold, if, if he didn't extend common grace and, and his kindness and mercy, grant people time to repent, he would just crush us all in this moment. God's grace his unmerited favor. And for those who are saved, born again, because they put their faith, hope, and trust in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, all those things. It, he gives us grace, his unmerited favor, and allows me then to be forgiven, adopted into the family of God, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Heaven is my home. All of that just because of his grace and his unmerited favor towards you and I. Not because I'm worth it or worthy. I'm not. I know who I am. See, as you grow and mature in Christ-likeness, you see your a greater level of your own sin and depravity. See, like people think well, that when they become more mature, more spiritual, then they will feel better about it. Like, no, no, no. When you become more mature and you grow more and more in the image and likeness of Christ, you will become more and more aware of your own depravity and your desperate need of his grace and his mercy that is new every morning. We desperately need it. That's why Paul said at the beginning of his ministry, he's like, I'm the worst of the apostles. By the end of it, he's like, I'm the worst of the saints. He's like, at the end of his life, he's like, I'm the worst Christian there is. Why? Because only I know the depths of the depravity of my own heart. See? So I can rightly say, I believe I'm the most depraved person I know. Because only I know the depth of the depravity of my own heart. But God, in his grace... In spite of my depravity, he's granted me unmerited favor. God's grace. He gives us the righteousness of Christ, gives us what we don't deserve. He empowers us to do what we cannot do on our own. Grace. Grace appeared. Point number one. Grace, this grace, it's grace that saves Grace that saves, verse 11. Verse 11, he says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Bringing salvation for all who would believe. This grace is grace that saves. Down in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us. To redeem us. To, to buy us back. This is grace that saves. There is only one way that we can be saved. It is through the finished work of Jesus Christ, trusting in the grace of God. What does this mean, bringing salvation? It means to be delivered from sin. Simply what it means, that we are delivered from our sin. Now, at the moment of salvation, we are delivered from the penalty of our sin. That's justification. Right? The moment of salvation, the moment that we put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, we are declared legally free from the penalty of our sin. Right? Immediately. And so, as I said this often, the newest Christian, five minutes, they've only been a Christian for five minutes, and a Christian who's been a devout follower of Jesus Christ for 50 years, they're both equally justified. 
One's not more justified than the other. It's just at that moment, declared legally free from the penalty of their sin, justified, just as, a, just as if I had never sinned in God's eyes. This grace of God brings salvation, forgiveness. But what does it mean? Delivered from sin and its consequences. Eternally delivered from the consequences of my sin. He goes on in verse 14, he says, to redeem us. To rede what does it mean to be redeemed? To release. To set free. From be to be delivered from our sin. I love our name, Redeemer. Why did we choose that name? Because if we are Christians, we have been redeemed. And if we have been redeemed, we can then have fellowship with God. And only then. And then we can have fellowship with other Christians. And then we are a church, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. All things we're going to see right in the text today. This grace brings salvation. Ephesians 2 a passage that many of you are very, very familiar with, and we must stay familiar with it. Verse 8, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we are saved, this grace, the grace of God saves us. Unmerited favor, just given as a gift to us so that we cannot boast. You, you can't boast into your intellect and think, well, I was just smarter. I was able to figure it out. No, the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who are perishing. And the only way that you are able to see your desperate need of the gospel is if God removes the blinders from your eyes. That's it. And that's all. And so in humility, like, I can't believe that God has saved me. This grace saved me. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is only one name under heaven with which man can be saved. The only way we can be saved from the consequences and the penalty of our sin, the only way we can go to God the Father is through Jesus Christ, God the Son. There's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And you know, in pride, sometimes you will hear people say, well, I can't believe God would only provide one way. How about in humility? I can't believe that God would provide a way. It's grace. It's grace that saves. It's grace that saves 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 through 6. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, there's one mediator between man and God, and it is the man, Jesus Christ. This grace that saves. There's only one way to the Father. Grace that saves. Number two, this grace also sanctifies. Number two, grace that sanctifies. Grace that sanctifies. Verse 12. He goes on and he says, 
This grace has appeared, brings salvation for all people, verse 11, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Down in verse 18, or verse 14, he says to purify a people for his own possession, to purify. This grace came training us to renounce ungodliness. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age and to purify a people for his own possessions. So grace, you've heard me say this over and over, grace that saves you is absolutely grace that trains you, that changes you, that conforms you more and more to the image of Christ. This idea that you can be saved by the grace of God, but not be changed by the grace of God. Like, like you, if you're saved, you will be changed. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must what? Must be born again. That is a new nature. You have to have a new nature. Uh, behold, the old has passed away. I've become a new thing. Perfectly, no, but increasingly. Grace that sanctifies, training this Grace that saves us also then trains us. If salvation doesn't change us, it hasn't saved us. Be born again. See, when we repent, we are agreeing with God. At salvation, we are agreeing with God. We agree with him that we are sinners. God, I agree with you that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short of the glory of God. God, I agree with you that the wages of my sin should be death. I agree that I am those things. That, that in the moment of salvation, we have to agree with God about our condition, about where we are. And in that moment, God changes us, training us to renounce. Now, training can be hard. Everybody wants, everybody wants to be fit. Well, most people do. Some people are like, I don't want to be fit. Like, whatever. It's just like... I got up once, one time to work out. Like, I'll never do that again. But honestly, we all desire to be, you know, fit or to be disciplined people. But the grace of God has appeared to train us. Here's what some people don't understand. When you become a Christian, some people think that everything will just get easier. Or that God will just download supernaturally into you patience, self-control. No, it's a training. It's a training. It's a process. Training us to renounce ungodliness. To live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. The grace of God has appeared to change us. Did you hear? The grace of God appeared in a personal work of Jesus Christ to save us. Now it's also the grace has appeared to sanctify us. What does it mean to be sanctified? Uh, for, uh, first and foremost, it means to be set apart, to be made holy. That's our positional sanctification. At the moment of salvation, we're all positionally sanctified. The righteousness of Christ is imputed and given to us, and so we stand righteous, set apart in the personal work of Jesus Christ. But then becomes what we call the divine human cooperative, where I must train myself. The grace of God has appeared to train us that's why Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. That is a process of you disciplining yourself in the word of God, in prayer, in repentance, 
all of those things. The grace of God has appeared to train us, to sanctify us, to purify us, to redeem us from all lawlessness. What does it mean to, uh, to re be redeemed from all lawlessness? Like before we are Christians, we live by our flesh. Uh, we, we rebel against the moral law of God, but the grace of God has appeared to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, this is what we call progressive sanctification. Again, it's the divine human cooperative. Positional, at the moment of salvation, the righteousness of Christ is given to us. We stand in the righteousness of Christ. God sees us that way, but now he is progressively conforming us to the image of Christ. The grace of God is training us in this way. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 through 8 speaks of this. For this is the will of God. You want to know what God's will is for your life? For this is the will of God for you. He goes on. Your sanctification. You're like, well, what's God's will for my life? Your sanctification. That you would progressively become more and more holy. Now he's going to spell out some things. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So one of the ways that God's grace comes into our lives and conforms us to the image of Christ as like, that we would live sexually moral lives. Now, this is an, this is an example. Uh, it's not all-inclusive. There's many other things that our flesh reveals or that, that our flesh produces. But he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. This whole thing of being self-controlled, Paul talked about it over and over and over in Titus. The grace of God comes to train us to be self-controlled, to live godly and upright lives. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress his brother or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is his avenger and all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you that God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So when we just reject God's moral law. You're, you're not disregarding me, but you're disregarding God. This grace is to purify us, to cleanse us, to train us to be holy, to be self-controlled. You know, God uses all kinds of things to train us and to sanctify us. And I know that in my own life, God has done the most training and the most sanctifying work in my life in the most difficult seasons of my life. We think that, we often think that when God trains us and when God conforms us to his image, that it's going to be this easy, nice experience. And I, have, I, I would just submit to you that I have found in my own life that's not how it works. He refines us. Do you know what happens when you're refined often? You're put in a fire. You're, putting a, you're, you're put into something. You're, putting in, you're put into pressure. And I have found in my own life that in those seasons, 
where it feels like boulders are falling down on you and you think you're as humbled as you possibly could be. God in his grace training us will just press down a little bit harder. This training, it's just like a person. Like world-level athletes, Division I wrestlers, they have to put themselves in a place that is so uncomfortable over and over and over to train their bodies, to train their minds to be able to compete at that kind of a level. That's how the grace of God works within our own lives often. When you see men and women who God is using powerfully, it's because he's also crushed them mightily. This grace that trains us. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world. When we are judged by the Lord, Sometimes God has to judge us and discipline us. And that is his grace. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Sometimes God disciplines us through the rebuke of a close friend. I remember years ago, I had met with a pastor. I'd never met him before, but I met with him because I needed some counsel and some help. And I went to him and was hoping for encouragement. And I was kind of bemoaning the situation I was in. And I'd never met this man before. And I was just kind of pouring my heart out to him and he stopped me probably 15, 20 minutes into like kind of my pouring myself out to him and he said, your church doesn't have a problem. You have a problem. When you get yourself right, everything will be fine. And there was this indignant, I, I was indignant. He doesn't know. How dare he? And, I mean, that's how I reacted. Now, I was gracious to him, but inside I was like, But when I left that dinner or that lunch that day and I got in my car, I called my wife and I told her and she became indignant. But then as I was traveling home, the Lord in his grace pressed upon me, Steve, you've asked for a mentor. Are you going to listen to me? See, God uses faithful or the wounds of a friend. God uses sometimes people who are close to Sometimes he uses people who don't, we don't even hardly know. God uses the loss of a loved one to sanctify us. God uses times when we are slandered and lied about. God uses anything and everything. And it's his grace in our lives training us to train us, to sanctify us, to bring us to a 
place of greater humility and dependence on him. And when he brings us to those places, he can then use us more powerfully. Something that a pastor that I used to used to be a bit of a mentor, he would always say, choose humility or choose humiliation. And I've found that even when you think you're choosing humility, God will sometimes humiliate. And maybe that's because we weren't as humble as we thought we were. Or maybe it's just because of God's grace. He is sanctifying us and purifying us, people for his own possession. Purification means we're going to go through some hard things. That's what it means, grace that sanctifies. Number three, grace that gives hope. Grace, grace that gives hope. He goes on, and he, uh, he talks about it at the end of verse 12. He said, living godly lives in this present age. What is this present age? The age we live in. Here inside of time. The grace of God. Like, in this present age, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This grace gives us hope. It gives us a certain hope. Now, again, we talked about this before. This hope that we have is certain. It's certain. It's not like, like, it's not like we hope that we don't have any more snow this year. Some of you are hoping for snow. Some of you are hoping we don't have any more snow. Like, it's not that. Some of us hope, uh, like Seth talked about basketball, like some of you hope that, I, I mean, I don't know anything about it. It's just, I don't know anything about basketball, like very little, and I like to keep it that way. And, um, but like some of you hope for like, I guess, your like, team to win, like they play games, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Like, but like, like we hope, like some of you hope the Eagles would win the Super Bowl. They didn't. Some of you hope they wouldn't. And you were, but, but those hopes aren't certain. This hope, the Paul's talking about is certain. It will happen. This, this, it gives hope. It's certain. The, ble the, the blessings that we will receive when Christ returns. And so for the Christian, this world is the closest thing we will ever experience to hell. For the non-Christian, this world is the closest thing they will ever experience to heaven. But this hope is certain. It's certain. This grace of God gives us a hope. The blessings that when Christ is come, when he comes again, his first coming, when he came, he came in humility, hidden. But his second coming will come in glory and in power and in majesty and in might. And everyone will know it. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, therefore stay awake for, your, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You don't know, so stay awake. It could be today, it could be tomorrow. Later on in Matthew 24, therefore you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. But the problem is, people say, well, it's been 2,000 years. Is he coming? We've got to remember what God's word says that a day is but a thousand years, and a thousand years is but a day. What did Jesus say about his second coming? Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, 
and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Like, like everyone will see it. Then if we go back to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Behold, he's coming soon. In verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. Verse 20, for he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming soon. We have a certain hope. This grace of God that has appeared in the personal work of Jesus Christ that saves us, that sanctifies us, and changes us also gives us a certain hope. Now, if, you would, if you're in Revelation, if you turn back to Revelation 19, Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16 just kind of gives us a picture of what Jesus' second coming will look like. And he saw heaven open. And one sitting, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by his name by which he is called is the word of God. Remember John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the word, and the word was... God and the word was with God. And he, here he is again, the word of God showing up. And he is the name by which he is called as the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming soon. And for the Christian, this should give us great hope. It should give us great hope. Certain hope. This world is not all there is. And Jesus is coming back to make war on his enemies. And when we look at secular society who scoffs at a biblical worldview and biblical Christianity, and you're like, how long must we endure? We are enduring longer because God's grace tarries. See, giving people time to repent, giving us opportunity to share the gospel. If we understand and understood the realities and the horrors of hell, we would want the Lord to tarry in his coming so that the gospel could go forward to more people. Because in the end, we will spend eternity with Jesus. And that is a certain hope. John 14, 3, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 talks about how that, that there will be a trumpet, a loud sound, and that the Lord will descend with the cry, and he will rapture, that the graves, like those who have died in Christ before, those graves will be opened and their bodies will be resurrected, and then we who are left on the earth will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air when he takes his church from this world. He's coming again, it's certain, it could be today, it could be tomorrow. We don't know, but it gives us a certain hope. It says it's waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior. Number four, this grace should also motivate us. This grace should also motivate us. Verse 14, who gave us himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify himself a people for his own possession. Here it is, who are zealous for good works. This grace, when we are saved, we should be motivated 
to good works. Zealous, it should motivate us to grow in Christ's likeness. It should motivate us to do good works. Motivate us. Remember, we're not saved by works. Remember that, Ephesians 2? Let's go back to that, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're not saved by works that we not, may not boast, not a result of our works so that no one may boast. But here's a verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in. And we, as the grace of God comes into our lives, should be zealous for good works. Why should we be zealous for good works? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave us reason. Matthew 5, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We exist to bring glory to God. Redeemers here. To bring glory to God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And we'll get, what is the Great Commission? Go make disciples. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has taught us. And we're going to do it in the spirit of the Great Commandment. What is the Great Commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to fulfill the mission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. A love, in love. Above all, putting on love. But why should we be zealous for good works? Because it's one of the primary ways that God has ordained that we would bring him glory. Glory. You will find the greatest fulfillment when your life is in the place of bringing God the most glory. Not you the most glory. God the most glory. See? It's grace that motivates us. We are to be motivated to do what is right and what is good. Are you motivated? Are you motivated to serve? Are you motivated to help others? Are you motivated to so let your light shine before men? But I suspect, for some of you, I think one of the things that really holds people back who've been in the church for a lot of years, sometimes we experience hurts in the church because people hurt people because we're depraved, fallen people, and people get hurt. And when people hurt people or people do things that they shouldn't in the church, sometimes it makes us shut down to serving. It's not going to invest anymore. It's just not worth it. But our hope isn't in man. It's not in preachers or leaders. It's in Christ. And he's called us to a mission irregardless of the depravity that's within the church because the best of men are men at best. And if we don't learn how to put the past behind us and to look forward, the enemy will use that to steal your zeal. talking to a pastor this week that 
I'd known years back, and then it's been probably five, six years since I talked to him and kind of rekindled our relationship this week. And he just said to me, remember, I've always said this, choose to get bitter or better. Bitter or better. Bitter or better. Grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. It's grace that sanctifies. This grace motivates us. This grace is an empowering grace. See, it's a grace that saves. But for me to stand up here and communicate is because of God's empowering grace. And God will call you into places to serve and to minister in your community where you feel ill-equipped and incompetent. And that's right where he wants you because he wants to empower you supernaturally by the Holy Spirit that indwells you and by his grace being poured out upon you. This grace should motivate us. But to be zealous for good works, we must be people who are willing to sacrifice. And we as Westerners and as Americans, and I'm certainly preaching to myself right now, we are selfish people. Selfish with our time, our money, our resources. And so often, one of the things that the enemy does, he gets us... I think one of his primary strategies in the church today is just to get us so busy, wear us out, exhaust us, get us so busy that we don't have time to serve. Time to be zealous for good works. And most of you would need to be zealous for good works right wherever God has you placed. That's what I call marketplace evangelism. Where you work. Where you go to school. Your neighbors. Like so many times people think, well, like being zealous for good works means, like, yes, you should serve your church. But the majority of you do, the majority of your ministry, right where you live your life. So that people see your light and your good works. And they're like, that person's different. Not perfect. Here's the thing. We got to remember, we're not the church of the perfect. We're just redeemed. We're just redeemed. We're not perfect. But I'm redeemed. And if you're a Christian, you're redeemed. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. The least we can do is be zealous for the things that he has called us to. He goes on in verse 15 then, and he tells Titus that he should exhort and rebuke. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, like, when you think about, like, exhorting, that's encouraging. Rebuking, that's, that's being, that's, like, having a harsh criticism for someone or correction. But I think what we need to take at this this morning and look at is, am I, am I a person who will receive that? And everybody, like, we're okay with being the person who gives that, but can I receive it? Will I receive it? And what I found that God often uses, the people who we don't think are as spiritually matures us to rebuke us because he humbles us in that. So as we close today, I think this is such a applicable section of scripture 
which of these areas do you need to grow in? But I think we have to start with this. Like, has God's grace saved you? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then scripture says the wages of sin is death. That if you have not gone to the Lord and asked him to forgive you, to redeem you, to change you, if you haven't gone to the Lord and acknowledged that you're a sinner, you're still under the wrath of God and you're not saved by the, graph of, by the grace of God. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that would be the first thing. You need to be saved by the grace of God. And so if I could just ask the church to just bow your heads and intercede. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm not going to call you forward. I just want you to acknowledge if you're not a Christian and you want to be saved today, you want this grace of God to save you from the wrath of God, would you just simply slip up your hand right where you are? Slip it up high so I can pray with you right where you are. with every head bowed and every eye closed, please honor me in this. If you raise your hand, you can put your hand down. I just want you to look up at me now. Are you saying this morning that you believe that you are a sinner? Just acknowledge by shaking your head. Are you saying this morning that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way with which man can be saved? Are you saying that? And are you saying that today you're asking him to forgive you and to redeem you and to change you. And you're acknowledging that you are a sinner in desperate need of salvation. And that today you want to commit your life to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Welcome. God bless you. God bless you. I believe there's others probably in here this morning who this grace that sanctifies us to change us. If you're in here this morning and you realize that you've just been walking in a season of unrepentant sin, hard-heartedness, and you want to recommit your life to the Lord this morning, would you just acknowledge that by slipping up your hand right where you are? I just want to pray with you. up for a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just a recommitment to the Lord. God, I'm going to... God, I acknowledge my heart has been hard or my heart has been hard. And you need your zeal for the things of the Lord rekindled. Your passion for the things of the Lord. Father, you see my brothers and sisters who are acknowledging that their hearts have maybe grown hard. Their zeal has waned. Father, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit today, rekindle, grant them repentance where they need to. Stir within them a passion for the fame of your name, for the things of God. To live self-controlled, righteous, upright, and godly lives. you empower them by your Holy Spirit. You can put your hands down. 
can look back up now as we close. We're going to take communion together. But again, communion is for those who are Christians. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we welcome you. We want you to be here. We're so thankful that you're here. The scripture says that you can take communion in an unworthy manner. And if you do that, you'll eat and drink judgment upon yourself, and we don't want that for you. To take communion as a non-Christian would be to profess something about yourself that's not true. We pray it will be soon. There's no judgment here. If you have the elements, we would just ask you to take them back, place them on the tray, or place them in the trash can. It's okay. Scripture also says that we can take communion in an unworthy manner as Christians. If you're a Christian, but you are living in willful, unrepentant sin, now we all sin, fall short of the glory of God every day. There's a difference between deliberate, willful, unrepentant sin. And scripture says that if you take communion as a Christian in deliberate, willful, unrepentant sin, you'll eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Well, we don't want that for you. And so if that is you, I would just ask you not participate in communion this morning, that you would deal with things between you and the Lord this week and come back next week and take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for your great love with which you loved us. That even while we were dead in our sins, you sent Christ to redeem, to save, to seek and to save the lost. Father, I thank you for the gift of salvation that you've granted to my sister this morning. Father, I pray that you would strengthen her. God, that your Holy Spirit would indwell her conform her and change her into your image and likeness. May you receive much glory in this place and in her life. Father, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, church. We have a mission to fulfill and above all, put on love.